Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 4. We continue our series called Stranger in a Strange Land. We'll talk a little bit about why we've called it that. But Daniel chapter 4, and this morning we're talking about humility. We're talking about humility. It may not be a shock to you that you came into a church on Sunday morning and we're talking about humility. It's one of the foundational Christian virtues. And in fact, really, humility is, believe it or not, a way that can move you forward in life. And that's not like a joke because what we see on TV and on the media and whatever else is that pride and lifting up of oneself and exalting oneself is what gets us accolades and affirmations and promotions and all that stuff. But that's not actually true. In fact, humility moves us forward in so many different ways. And before we talk about humility, what it is and how to get it, before we read King Nebuchadnezzar's story about how his life kind of came crashing down because of his lack of humility, what I want to do is kind of wet your whistle a little bit and remind us how important humility is and what it can do in your life. And, and the first thing I, I, would, I would ask you to do is look up here on the screen at this quote. It's my belief that pride is the chief cause in the decline of the number of husbands and wives. Does anybody know this quote, Roger Miller? Does anybody know this? Nobody knows this? Do you remember King of the Road? Trailers for sale or rent. Yeah, that's that guy. And he's saying this, it's my belief pride is the chief cause in the decline of the number of husbands and wives. Now, I was 98% sure that that joke was not going to hit. And so thank you for confirming that for me. Very, very nice of you to do that. But this is actually true. If you are having issues in your marriage, check your pride. If you feel like you have conflict with your spouse on a regular basis, check your pride. Or more likely, check your spouse's pride because it's probably their fault. But, but, but also, check, also check your own after you've checked theirs. Um, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great about effective leadership, and he argues that there are kind of five levels of leaders, and that level five leader are the best of the best. You know, the Jack Welches and the Steve Jobs of the world, those are the best of the best. And what sets those leaders apart? Check this out. Uh, Jim Collins wrote this. Level five leaders are a study in duality. They're modest and willful, humble and fearless. Jim Collins, who, who wrote a book called Good to Great that sold a bunch, uh, you know, enough that he wrote a book and, 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 and it went on the New York Times bestseller list. You may have heard of that. Uh, that he argues that a level five leader, the most effective leader, has the characteristic of humility. And so many of us, even in our jobs, as we want to move forward and grow and promotions and whatever, think that we've got to do that by lifting ourselves up and glorifying ourselves. The reality is Jim Collins, who, who wrote a book that sold a lot more copies than the book that you wrote, okay, would argue that humility is what sets the best leaders apart. It's a, it's a critical characteristic for the best leader. Andrew Murray is a devotional writer, a Christian devotional writer. He's been writing, uh, wrote a lot of books over the course of his career about 100 years ago. He wrote this. He said that uh, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. This really is a foundational Christian virtue that intimacy with God, uh, that humility is a prerequisite for that. 
So whether it's developing relationships with your spouse, your friends, your children, whether it's succeeding even in a professional environment, according to Jim Collins, whether it's living out your faith and and enjoying a, a lively and vibrant relationship with God, humility is a prerequisite for all of those things. We must have humility. And so today in Daniel chapter 4, we're taking a look at a man named Nebuchadnezzar who didn't have any, and what that lack of humility did in his life. And if you've got Daniel chapter 4 open, before we go any further, I kind of want to tell you that Daniel chapter 4 is really chunked into four sections, represented up here on the screen by these four letters, A, B, B, A. And no, it's not this Abba that sang Dancing Queen, not that Abba. I know some of you were hopeful, but it's A, B, B, A as in part one, part two, part three, part four, and part one and part four correspond, and part two and part three correspond. So part one and part four of Daniel chapter four is a doxology that Nebuchadnezzar shares. Doxology is the Greek word for words of glory, doxa meaning glory. Glory and logos, meaning words. He speaks words of glory to God in part one and in part four. And if you wonder, how did Nebuchadnezzar get to this point, this polytheistic man who is now speaking words of glory to God? Well, he tells us because in part B, he has a dream and and then there's a fulfillment of that dream. The, the, the middle section of Daniel chapter 4 shows up in two parts. First, his dream, and second, his fulfillment. So we're going to start with this very first doxology and hear what Nebuchadnezzar says about God. If you're following with me, Daniel chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, and how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's his very first doxology. Interestingly enough, watch this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, it seemed good to me. Now remember who King Nebuchadnezzar is. He's polytheistic, that means he worships many gods. He's the king of the Babylonian Empire, and at that particular time, the Babylonian Empire was like so immoral, it would be embarrassing to talk about it in church, right? This is not necessarily a Yahweh-following, morally pure man. He's a pagan, and yet, Daniel chapter 4 is written from his perspective. So just a little tidbit of information, Gleason Archer, who's a Bible scholar, points out that this is the one and only chapter in all of Scripture that's written purely from the uh, perspective of a pagan. Not a Christ follower, not a God follower. Nebuchadnezzar is about to talk about the signs and wonders that God has done for him. He says, that's what I want to do. I want to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And how did God do those signs and wonders for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he did it in a dream. He did it in a dream. So here's what's happening. This is towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar reigned a very long time in Babylon. During his reign, Nebuchadnezzar built a lot of different things. In fact, he built 
two of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of them being the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that you may have heard of. He built a palace big enough that you could run around the outside of the palace with a six-horse chariot. He used to have chariot races around the top of his palace. This was a highly successful man. And towards the end of his reign, he is... Uh, this is the New Lucas translation. He's chillaxing, right, in his palace. Do the kids say chillaxing now? Do they say that? Do they say on, on, the, on the fleek? Do they say that? He's on, he's on, the, he's on the fleek? On the fleek? He's, he's vaping? Do they vape? <laughs> he's vaping. Good. Got it. So he's vaping in his palace, and it's towards the end of his reign, and he's super happy with what he's done. It's, the Bible says he's at ease in his palace, and he has a dream that disturbs him. And he calls the Chaldeans, the magicians, the sorcerers. You guys remember Brandon talking about the Chaldeans last week? Okay, one thing that Brandon actually left out of his sermon last week was, are you kidding me? He didn't leave anything out. How good was that? How good was Brandon last week? So good. Also, still single, just so you know. Um, Talked about these Chaldeans who were kind of running the kingdom and leading the kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar calls these advisors to himself. He goes, look, I've had this dream. I need the interpretation and none of them can do it. This has become a pattern now in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He's going to the wrong people for advice. Finally, he goes to Daniel. Now, Daniel is a young Hebrew man who has been exiled from Jerusalem into the kingdom of Babylon. Remember, the Babylonian Empire has come in. They've besieged Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem. Eventually, they will destroy the temple. Nebuchadnezzar has taken all the young leaders, the young Israelite uh, Jewish leaders, out of Israel and exiled them into Babylon to teach them the ways of the Babylonian empire or the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So by this time, Daniel has learned that literature and language. He's become a bit of a leader in the kingdom. He's become a bit of a counselor to the king. So Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, here's the dream I had. Please interpret it. We could read it in the scripture. It's going to take a little long time to, a little bit of a long time to read it. So read it on your own when you get home. But essentially, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel. I dreamed that there was a big tree in the middle of a field and it grew and it had branches and fruit and it provided shade for all the animals and birds of the air came to nest in it. And it was obviously clearly the biggest tree in all of the field. But then a watcher, a watchful one or a wakeful one is the original translation. Essentially someone who's woke uh, is, see, kids are saying that too. I know. See, I watch the Instagrams. And so, so a, a watchful one, which is basically an angelic being, comes down and chops this tree down to his stump. And the watchful one says, wrap the stump up in a band of bronze and a band of iron. Spoiler alert, it's not to inhibit it, it's to protect it. So it's not to, it's not to squash or debilitate that stump that's left, it's to protect that stump that's left because eventually the stump is going to grow again. So that's the spoiler, right? So he says to Daniel, Daniel, Here's what's going on. And Daniel literally responds with absolute silence. He just looks at the king. And Nebuchadnezzar calls him by his Babylonian name. He says, Belteshazzar, don't be afraid to tell me what this dream is. And Daniel literally says to him, I really hope that this is not for you, but it's for your enemies. That's what I hope. And he says, no, 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 you got to tell me what it is. He goes, oh, king, 
that tree is you. Your kingdom and your prosperity has grown to greatness and and the magnitude of who you are has grown and so many people from all over have come to find shade and comfort in your kingdom. But now, O king, because of the decree of the most high God, you will be chopped down to a stump. And then Daniel starts to say some things to King Nebuchadnezzar that might sound a little bit cryptic. You might go, that's weird. That's interesting. What, what, What does that even mean? So he says a couple things. He says, first... Your fingernails are going to grow out real long like eagle's claws. What? And then your hair is going to eventually look like feathers. Again, to which Nebuchadnezzar could only have, it doesn't record it in the scripture, but could only have responded like, what? Like a mullet? Like what is, what is this that you're, and then, and then you're going to be covered with the morning dew. What does that mean? But this is what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, if you want to avoid it, you'll do this, and we'll, you'll, I'll give you some advice. He doesn't take it. We'll get there in a little bit. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take his advice. And for a year, nothing happens. I mean, there's no tree, there's no stump, there's no kingdom, there's no watchful one, there's no nothing until the dream is fulfilled. And that's the third part of our text in Daniel chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what happened. At the end of 12 months, a year has gone by. He, that's Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, look, most scholars would guess, they would conjecture, educated guess now, that he's on the roof of his palace and he's overlooking the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that he built. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now, Bible readers in the room, how often does this heart posture work out well for the person who takes it? Not often. So while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You're being cut down to a stump. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Now watch this. This is fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar, after taking this heart posture of pride now against Daniel's counsel, is leveled to the posture of a beast, an animal. There's actually a diagnosis for this. It's called lycanthropy. It still exists now. People believe themselves to be any number of animals. They believe themselves to be a cow. They believe themselves to be a gerbil. There was a man who believed himself to be a cat. Literally, a man believed himself to be a cat, and he was gainfully employed for 13 years, even though he believed himself to be a cat. That's a true story. He was employed, of course, at the CRA. Um, that's not true. That part's not true. That's why that part's not true. But he did believe himself to be a cat and was gainfully employed. Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be an ox. He believed himself to be an animal. 
And most scholars would suggest that those seven periods of time that you just heard are seven years. So for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar left his palace and lived out in the woodland area, right? Out in the bush. And he was eating grass. And he wasn't grooming himself, so his fingernails grew long like eagle's claws. Are you with me? What was cryptic has now become clear. His hair grew and it wasn't groomed or brushed or washed, so it became matted like eagle's feathers. And he was covered in morning dew. Why? Because he never came inside. So every morning he'd get up and he would be covered in morning dew, just like the other beasts of the field. He is leveled to thinking he was an ox. And the dream is fulfilled. At the end of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns to him and his kingdom is handed back to him. And he begins to speak once again a final doxology, words of glory to God. Here's what he says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, we're back to the first person now. If you notice, there was a change in voice from first person to third person when Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes insane. History actually records that for seven years, we don't really know what happened with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom other than his son took over for seven years. It's because his dad thought he was an ox and living in the field. And in that case, you're you're not, you know, c- capable of leading a kingdom for sure, and you're not literate enough to write this stuff down or dictate it. So for those seven years, somebody else spoke on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. Now his reason has returned to him, and he's speaking for himself again. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. Among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar who would not humble himself before God, and thus God humbled him. So, I mean, and I guess this is a silly question maybe, why in the world is that story in the book of Daniel, right? Why would God include that in there at all? What what does God, for what reason Did God inspire someone to write this down for posterity so that 2,000 years, well, in this case, it's 2,600 years later, we're sitting here on a Sunday morning reading it? I think there are two reasons. One is that God desires this to be an encouragement to us. He desires this to be an encouragement to us. Here's what I mean by that. Remember we talked about this, that Daniel is not a book about Daniel, remember? And Daniel is not a book about visions. Daniel is a book about what? God. That's right. Let's try that one more time. Daniel is a book about God, right? God wants to reveal some things about his character. In the first half with some historical stories, in the second half with some visions, God wants us to know some stuff about him. 
Yes, there's some things about Daniel. Yes, there's some things about Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, there's some things about a fiery furnace and all those things. But ultimately, on the very surface of the thing, foundationally, God wants us to know about his character. So here's why this is an encouragement. That a pagan, polytheistic, immoral king who thinks very, very highly of himself would eventually say this about God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, that's God, does according to his will and among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, people in leadership only serve because of the good pleasure of God. There is no one in leadership in antiquity and no one in leadership now that, is, that exists there outside of the province, providence of God. Nebuchadnezzar was there because of God's will and sovereignty. In other words, no authority exists outside of God's will. When God wanted Nebuchadnezzar gone, he just immediately, did you catch that word immediately? Immediately he was reduced to thinking he was an ox. That's what God does. And then Nebuchadnezzar reminds us at the end of the passage, he says, nobody can say to God, what have you done? All of the kingdoms of the earth are his. The dominion is his. And every leader serves at his good pleasure, good or bad. No authority exists outside of God's will. Daniel will affirm this in Daniel chapter 2. He says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Paul would remind us in Romans, there is no authority except those uh, from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus himself, when he stood before Pontius Pilate as an authority, the man that would eventually passively wash his hands of Jesus' death and turn him over to be crucified, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. See, this is a theme of the scripture that no authority exists outside of God's will. None, not one. One, the Bible says that the heart of the king is like a stream in the hands of God. He just directs it where he will. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you watch the news, but not every leader, world leader, political leader, provincial leader, business leader, is, is, is like Daniel in terms of godliness. I don't know if you've noticed that. Most of them not as bad as Nebuchadnezzar, but there have been some. And for some of you, you come from places where the leader was like this. Remember in the chapter before this, this guy made a statue probably of himself and said, everyone bow down to this statue of me. Like this is a bad dude. Not a humble man, not a tender man, a man who's all about himself. And listen, he served as king only because of the good pleasure of God. Uh, Christ followers in the room, listen to me. Listen to me very, very closely. I do not care who is in power. I don't care. Not I don't care as in I don't vote or I don't try to influence. I do those things. You know why when I say I don't care who's in power? Because God's in power. And because no authority exists outside of his will, they only serve at the good pleasure of God. And at any point, he could reduce them to a beast in the field. That should bring some comfort, friends. That should bring some comfort to those of us in the room who love and follow and attempt to serve God to the best of our ability. Is that he is always in control despite 
present circumstances, despite appearances, no authority. And I'm, just, I'm not just talking about the U.S., you know, where I was born. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about all over the world. Whatever you see on the news, whatever fake story somebody else posts on their Facebook account, I know you've never done that because you check it all out before you post it, of course. Like, we, we, just, we just believe this stuff as Christians, and we just eat it right up, and all of a sudden, well, God's he's spinning out of control, and we act like it's out of control, and it's not. God is always in control. Even in this pagan, polytheistic world of the Babylonian Empire 2,600 years ago, where things were coming completely off the rails morally, and people were being made to worship an actual image, God, listen, God is still in control. Do not be fooled. Good? I hope that was encouraging. (laughs) The second thing that we learn here, and I think it's a bit of a warning, because uh, in the middle of this dream interpretation, before the fulfillment of the dream, before Nebuchadnezzar is kind of reduced to an ox, Daniel looks at him and says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, in other words, let me give you a little bit of unsolicited advice, brah. (laughs) The kids are saying brah. Yeah. All the things the kids are saying this morning. Some of you are going, I'm never coming back here. Um, And I've said, brah, vaping, on fleek, and chillax. So I guess I don't blame you. Um, So, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice such that this dream that you have doesn't come to pass. Here's the unsolicited advice. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the the oppressed. Essentially, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Leave your sins, leave your iniquities, and pursue righteousness and care for the oppressed. Do those things, and then there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. He still pats himself on the back. He still raises his own flag rather than the flag of Yahweh. And eventually he becomes to be like an ox thinking he's an animal. He's humbled by God. This is why in his final doxology to end the chapter, he says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble So essentially, uh, let's boil it down to something very, very simple. What is Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar to avoid this downfall? Well, it's the same advice that uh, rapper Kendrick Lamar would give to you. Here it is. Sit down. Be humble. For those of you who like Kendrick Lamar, you're like, man, this is great. For those of you who don't know who Kendrick Lamar is, don't go look him up. All right, so um, that's his advice. He says, look, humility is paramount. Avoid your kingdom coming apart. Avoid it coming off the rails. Avoid all this stuff by simply being humble before the greatness and majesty of God. Now, here's the deal. Um, I think for most of us, we, it, we don't know when we're prideful. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, pride is really insidious, like, it's one of those blind spots that we have. And we, we don't know that we're prideful. 
In fact, at my old church um, where I used to serve, it uh, feels like decades ago now, but um, it's called Scottsdale Bible Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a great church. If you're ever in Scottsdale, go to Scottsdale Bible Church. Wonderful, wonderful place. I love it very, very much. I say all that because I'm about to say something negative about Scottsdale Bible Church, but no, know that when I say that, I really love Scottsdale Bible Church. We had to fill out a performance review at the end of the year, just like you do in your job. You know, fill out a performance review, your supervisor reviews you or whatever, but when you're a minister, you get graded on like your Christian character. Right, So they would have us rate ourselves on a one to 10 on like the fruits of the spirit. How loving were you this year? How joyful, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control, all that stuff. And then one of them that they threw in there is they had, they had you rate yourself on a one to 10, one being the least, 10 being the most on humility. Now that's a trick. I'll just tell you that right now. That's a trick. Because what are you gonna say? Like, you know what? I'm a very humble person. I'll just give myself a 10. Well, then you've ruined it right there, Right? Or if you're like, you know what, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but so I'll just give myself a one. Now you've been dishonest. It's a trick. It's a trick. And for those of us, uh, even me, and, and I, I have been open about this, I definitely struggle with pride, and, and really all of us do. And maybe you've never set up a statue for yourself. Maybe you've never had your, you know, your children construct a statue so that everyone in your neighborhood could bow down to it, you know? Probably haven't. But there are some ways in which... You demonstrate pride in your own life. I'll be honest with you. There are. And so I want to just slide a couple of things across the table to you, right, to consider and say maybe, maybe I experience pride just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Maybe it doesn't express itself in the same way, but that still is lurking in my heart. So, so here are a couple ways that maybe you can identify if you struggle with pride. Number one, if this sermon isn't for you, If you're thinking right now, man, this is really good. You know who really needs to hear this? Then it's for you because you struggle with pride, okay? If you're unable to accept criticism, somebody comes along and says, you know, look, you know, you you, you need to grow in this particular area or your supervisor or your spouse or your child or whatever uh, brings something to light and you get defensive, it's likely because of pride in your own heart. If you are reluctant to apologize, check your pride. Men and women of God, this is what I said a minute ago, that pride is the chief cause and the decline of the number of husbands and wives. Look, this is what happens with couples when they struggle, when they have fights, when when, when marriages dissolve. It's because of pride almost every single time. And one of the ways that pride works itself out is like, I'm not going to apologize. She was wrong. And let me tell you something. Men... She wasn't wrong. I don't care what she did. She wasn't wrong. You're always wrong, men. That's what Amy's taught me. Um, You clap. Don't you clap at that. You guys are the the worst. You're the worst. If you're reluctant to apologize, it's probably because of pride. If you know a better way, if you know a better way... In my line of work, I mean, like, I would never go into, like, somebody who, like, builds cars for a living or a, a lawyer or something and say, like, you know, you should probably check the carburetor. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to put gas in my car, you know? Like, I don't know how to, But I get these emails all the time of people that say, you know, I know that you have, a, you know, a master's degree in ministry and you've been doing this for 20 years, but I have a couple ideas that you may have not considered yet. Because I know a better way. I'm like, oh, wow, really good. Thank you. I hit the delete button right away on those, just so you know. 
It's like the, our pastors here, like we eat, live, and breathe this stuff. This is all we talk about. This is all we read about. This is all we think about. I'm not saying that we have the best way. I'm just saying that when we get in that heart posture of looking at other people and believing we have a better way to live life, do something, or whatever, that usually comes from a heart of pride. If you find that any task is beneath you, you know, I don't want to clean up after work. I don't want to join a serve team. I don't want to serve the kids because that task is kind of beneath me. Men of God, just be straight with you. Sometimes we think that because I, I, I you know, and, and most most uh, marriages are like this. You are kind of the breadwinner, right? You go to work and all that stuff. And, and your spouse, most of the time, not all the time, not all the time, a lot of time takes care of the children. That's what's happening in my home, right? And so we fool ourselves. We say, okay, like, because I'm the breadwinner, then taking care of the children is kind of a task that's beneath me. So when I get home from a long day at work, I just want to chillax. <laughs> I said that two times now. I'm so happy. Um, so this is what I want to do. Listen, Amy went to like a little spiritual retreat for the last 36 hours. She stayed at Sisters of St. John the Divine Convent right around the road. You ever get a chance to do it? Highly recommend it. So, so cool. And I had to take care of both children by myself. They are both still living. And, and that's, I'm excited about that. Friends, men of God, that task is not beneath you. You are beneath that task. That is so incredibly hard. Like I called Amy, like in tears almost yesterday. Are you almost home? The children are throwing things. Canaan's growing his fingernails out and he's eating grass like an ox. I think he has like anthropy. I don't know. Please come home, you know. If you have problems with authority, supervisor at work, somebody who's a boss of yours, if you have problems with authority, it's likely because of pride. If you're a name dropper, if you're a name dropper, it's likely because of pride. Which is, which is hilarious to me. It's very, very funny because I was having a conversation with some friends about this the other day. Uh, their names are Kim and Kanye. I don't know if you've heard of them. And they, um, don't worry about it. It was just a funny conversation. Um, I don't know Kim and Kanye. Uh, if you can't forgive, it's probably because of pride. And some of you are thinking, oh man, like, yeah, I can't forgive that person. It's because of pride. I get it. You know what? If you can't forgive yourself, it's because of pride. Here's why. Because forgiveness is extended by the mercy of God. You have nothing to do with it. You don't earn it. And for some of us, we can't let ourselves go. We can't let this vision of self go that I need to be in control, that I need to earn it, that I need to balance the scales, that I need to do something. You hear all that I, 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 I. And you can't forgive yourself. You can't experience the forgiveness of God because you are still in the middle of it. That's pride, friends. That's pride. That's not insecurity. Don't fool yourself into believing that. It's not a biblical vision of grace either. It's the unmerited favor of God. And if you can't forgive yourself, it's pride. You know what? You know what the, the forgiven person is the one who is humbled before a mighty God and knows that they did nothing to deserve it. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. 
Friends, I want to give you a quick definition of humility, and then I want to encourage you in one way to cultivate it. You may have heard this before, like humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Have you heard that before? I think that's true. I do. I think that's true to some extent. Uh, The more I think about it, the more I feel like humility is really seeing God. If you know Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes before God and he sees God for who he is, he says, I'm just coming undone. When Nebuchadnezzar sees God for who he is, did you hear all of the things he just said about God? Instead of I, I, I built this kingdom, it's his dominion is everlasting. His reign is everlasting. His kingdom is everlasting. I extol and honor and praise him. It's all about him. All the glory is deflected to him. All the attention is deflected to him. See, when Nebuchadnezzar sees God for who he is, in all his greatness, in all his majesty, in all of his expanse, in all of his sovereignty, he's humbled. He's humbled. Humility really comes from seeing God accurately, truly, a vision of God. We really can't ever see God, right? I mean, especially in all his expanse, in all his greatness, in all his majesty. But one thing that helps me is nature. I don't know about you, but nature does. Especially space, the solar system, the universe, that kind of stuff. So I was thinking about uh, an image, a picture that was taken 30 years ago this month, Valentine's Day, 1990. You may be familiar with the picture. If not, it's up here on the screen. You see the tiny little speck here? (laughs) Anybody know what this picture is? The Voyager 1 was a spacecraft that was launched by the United States uh, in And in February of 1990, it was just leaving the solar system. And an astrophysicist named Carl Sagan had the wisdom and foresight to say, hey, can we take a selfie real quick? So from about 6 billion kilometers away, the Voyager 1 turned its camera around and took a picture of Earth. Less than a pixel. Less than a pixel Carl Sagan wrote this, uh, and said this actually about the picture. He said, that's here, that's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, including Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, and your friends and neighbors and cousins, seven billion people worldwide. Every human who has ever lived, lived out their lives on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You can fit a million Earths inside the sun. And the sun is not the biggest star in our solar system or in our galaxy. There are billions of stars in our galaxy and billions of galaxies outside of our galaxy. And God just spoke that into existence. In the original language, uh, in the Hebrew, Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the stars... That's just one word. And the stars. Just one Hebrew word. He didn't even have to move his hand. He just spoke, let there be light. And there was. Friends, we are so fragile. We are so humble. We are so minuscule. And yet the word of God says, What is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you would think of him? He loves you still. 
He wants you still. He desires you still. He wants a relationship with you, but it requires humility. Tim Keller is a famous preacher, and he would say that the beauty of the gospel is this, that you are far more sinful, humble, fragile than you could ever admit. But you are loved far more, cherished far more than you could ever fathom. This is why humility is so critical and we stand in awe of a mighty God. We stand on the precipice of his universe and creation, feel the weight of his glory and are humbled before him. Let's pray. God, thank you for an opportunity to look into your word today. Thank you for the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and not just the ways that he struggled with pride and how you brought him low. But God, um, the ways that you protected him, that band of iron and band of bronze around that stump. And when he was humbled, God, you exalted him once again and grew him once again and grew his kingdom once again. May that be true of us. That we stand humbled before a mighty God and we see the ways in which you bless us as we are humbled before you. In Jesus' name, amen.